from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. Nevertheless, God. That's my title this morning. Nevertheless, God. The word nevertheless means in spite of, notwithstanding, or although, which points back to some prevailing conditions that Paul speaks of, and then tells us something about God that meets that need and works against or in the prevailing conditions that Paul is speaking about. In our study of this epistle, this may be a good place for a brief review. You'll remember Paul made an unplanned visit to Corinth. There were a lot of problems going on at Corinth. When he arrived, it did not go well. He had told them he would return on a second trip, but he didn't come. The reason is he thought it would not be profitable in the timing of that second visit. Instead, he decided to write a letter, a letter of rebuke, a letter of correction for which he references in this second epistle. Now, some think it was the first letter to the church at Corinth. Others think it was the lost letters because we do know Paul did write additional letters. 1 Corinthians 5.9 says, I wrote unto you not to keep company with fornicators. Well, that had to be prior to the first letter, which means it could not have been the second letter. So Paul wrote additional letters that were good and right and truthful, but God didn't decide to put them in the canon of Scripture. Whether it was the first letter that Paul is referring to here in chapter 7, or it was a lost letter, it is somewhat not significant because we know it was a letter of rebuke. And the first letter was such a letter... And if Paul wrote another letter, it would have been similar in its content and purpose. So Paul writes the letter, presumably sending it by Titus. He's waiting for Titus to return. He receives the news of their response from Titus and the criticisms that the church is still leveling against Paul. Many had repented, some had not. And so Paul writes this letter to to describe why... He didn't come on that second visit, and we saw that in the first two chapters. And then the digression of chapter 3 through 6, explaining his new covenant ministry. And then in verse 5, he picks up where he left off in chapter 2, explaining why he had delayed and not come, and why he sent this letter, which is what we see now continued in chapter 7. So under this heading of Nevertheless God, we look at just two things this morning. Godly comfort and then godly sorrow. Nevertheless, God, verse 6, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul will make the point again that God is the source of all comfort and God was the source of Paul's comfort as it describes God as the one who comforts those that are cast down. The word comfort, again, means to call to one side, to summons or to call to. And then it means to speak to someone. So the connection is that God is calling us to His side through words. These words that God speaks through truth or we speak to one another are words to encourage, to strengthen, to exhort, to admonish, to warn, to correct. All those those nuances and many more are found in this word comfort that's used all over the New Testament. But notice that God is comforting 
those that are cast down. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? The word cast down means not rising far from the ground. It means a condition of being low, of being grieved, or of being depressed. Do you ever qualify for that kind of comfort? Not rising far from the ground. This word is used in the New Testament to speak of conditions in one's circumstances or conditions in one's disposition. For example, in James 1, 6 or 1, 9, I think it is, James would say, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted, but the rich in that he's made low. So clearly there, the dispos- it's not a disposition, it's low in circumstances. In contrast to being rich, the brother of low degree is poor. He's literally poor in his circumstances. Mary would use this word uh, with two English words in Luke one fifty two when she went to visit Elizabeth concerning the news of the birth of Jesus Christ or that she was expecting the coming Messiah. And in her Magnificat, she would say, He that is God has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted those of low degree. Well, speaking of herself, she was a lowly, poor handmaiden. So she's speaking like James was of conditions in circumstances. Now Paul speaks about such conditions in his own case in verse 5 when he said, When we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side without were fightings. So the prevailing conditions for Paul while he's in Macedonia is that there are fightings all around him. The word is often used to mean persecution, some kind of difficulty that Paul's in. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but if we remember from his list in chapter 4, in chapter 6, and again, he will tell us in chapter 11, Paul was continually having fighting strugglings with unbelievers persecuting him, and then with false brethren inside the church, he often experienced such fightings or circumstances everywhere he went. He would say he was troubled on every side. But this word also speaks of conditions inwardly in the disposition, the heart, the mind, the soul. It's used this way in James 4, 6, where James would say, He giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the lowly, the humble. Now that could be outward circumstances, but in that context we know it's a disposition of the heart. It's a heart that's not rising far from the ground in disposition because we're in the presence of something very high, which is the glory, the person of God in Christ. Now, Paul was also experiencing such prevailing conditions because in verse 5 again, he says, within were fears. So within, inside of him, he's experiencing anxious thoughts and an anxious soul. Why? Well, we don't know specifically, but we can guess, one, his relationship with Corinth. He's waiting for Titus to come back with the news. Are they angry at Paul or did they respond favorably with repentance? So it's a good kind of care for the church. Also, he doesn't know where Titus is yet. Now, he told us in chapter 2, before he went on his digression, that he was in Troas preaching Christ's gospel. A door was opened to him of the Lord, but he had no rest in his spirit. Now, here he says flesh, 
chapter 2, he says, spirit, while he was in Troas. So he said it's because he couldn't find Titus, his brother. So he left them and departed to go to Macedonia, which you can see in verse 5 of chapter 7. He picks up there when we were coming to Macedonia. So likely, Paul and Titus had agreed to meet in Troas, but Titus doesn't make it. There's a no-show. He's concerned. Apparently, the next point of meeting would be Macedonia. So he goes to Macedonia and he waits there and he's experiencing anxieties. Why? Likely because Titus has not yet arrived. But now he's telling us that Titus has come and now God, the God who is comforting the cast down, is now comforting Paul in these circumstances. Now, the, 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 the two dots we want to connect here is something that Paul told us at the outset of this letter for which he picks up again here in verse 6 about God being the God of all comfort. You remember in verse 4 of chapter 1, he said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those in any trouble, with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And then Paul goes out and talks about his tribulations, and for three chapters he talks about his new covenant ministry where there's much suffering, much suffering. Now, to connect the dot, he returns to the issue and the subject of God being the comforter of those that are cast down. Now he's cast down, not only outward circumstances, but the crisis of the relationship he is having with the church at Corinth. He is down because of that. He's grieved over it. And to connect the dots, what is Paul saying now? With the opening of the book and with the three chapters, which are kind of a digression of explaining his travel plans changing, Paul is saying this. In his entire ministry in life, God is both active and present to be a God that comforts those that are grieved, downcast, struggling in some way. And beloved, God is that God for us today, isn't He? We can say today, God is the God that's comforting those that are cast down, that are low. Whether it be outward circumstances that are touching your life right now, here this morning, or an inward disposition of struggling, with fears and anxieties and struggles, maybe over a crisis of relationship that you're in right now. God, we need to remember, is the God who is present and active to be the God who is bringing comfort to those that are depressed, cast down, and struggling. And that's good news this morning. But notice, furthermore, that he doesn't speak of God as if this is a task on a resume that you may put on your resume where you speak of certain tasks you've accomplished that may recommend you for a current present job, as if God's saying, you know, there have been times in my past where I have comforted people. No, in the original language, he uses the definite article. Nevertheless, the God who is, present tense, comforting the cast down. This speaks of God as an identity. This is who he is. This is not just something he does. At the very heart of God, at the nature of God, He is the God that brings comfort. And that's good news for us, if you need that comfort. Think of how He speaks of this in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 57, verse 15. 
where God would say, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I, the Lord God, the high and holy one, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Lo, not rising far from the ground. To do what? To revive the spirit of the contrite and to revive the spirit of the humble. For what purpose? Verse 18, I will lead him and restore comforts to the mourners. God comes to dwell for the purpose of reviving and for the purpose of restoring comforts. That's why he comes to you. That's why he's with you to be a comforter to you. That's his identity. Secondly, in Isaiah 61, why did Jesus come in part? He would say, or Isaiah would say concerning Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek or to the low or to those that don't rise very far from the ground. Of course, it could be outward circumstances, but we know that's in our disposition. We've been humbled. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those that are bound or incarcerated, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Why did the Spirit anoint him to preach the good tidings of himself? To comfort all those that mourn, to appoint them that mourn in Zion, which means the comfort for mourners is this appointment to those in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of what? Heaviness, cast down, lowliness. Jesus came, at least in part, to be a comforter. That's who He is. And in John 14, He would say to the apostles, I will pray to the Father and He will send you another what? Comforter, which is the noun form of the verb in chapter 7 that we're looking at. His very name is the Comforter and He will abide with you forever. Now what's the Comforter coming for? In part, to live with you to bring the comfort of God. Now, the word another is alos instead of heteros. Heteros means another of a different kind. But alos means another of the same kind. Well, who's the first kind if the Holy Spirit is another of a second kind or another kind? It's Jesus, who means then He's the Comforter. And it's God the Father, who is what? The noun Comforter, with a big C. The Trinitarian God exist in part to bring you comfort. The gospel is the gospel of comfort. And God dwells with us to revive our spirits, to bring us comfort and to restore those comforts to us again and again and again. And even Jesus himself says what? Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek Lowly, that's the same word for cast down. Christ is cast down. He's low. He doesn't rise far from the ground, right? Both in His disposition and heart, but notice in His circumstances when He came, His first advent. He did not rise low from the ground, ever, did He? He was born in a lowly manger and in a lowly city, according to Micah 5, 2. Thou Bethlehem of Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, 
as the littlest place. It's small. It was the most insignificant place among all the tribes and cities of Judah. And yet, out of these shall come forth unto me he that is of old from everlasting. God himself would be born in a manger in a small, insignificant city. He would live an insignificant life as far as the human eye is concerned. He's just a son of a carpenter. And his parents are lowly, insignificant, poor, low-degree people. His education, nothing mentioned about it. He didn't learn in the rabbinical schools. Lowly education, lowly life, lowly lifestyle, didn't have any money, lowly rank, lowly status, lowly ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, the colt, the foal of an ass. Lowly, and then dying a lowly death. The worst of deaths. Jesus is cast down, that's the word, lowly, both in heart, and he became lowly in status and in his life and in his circumstances. Why? That he may bring to you the God of comfort and that he may be for you the comforter in the Holy Spirit, in himself, and in God the Father. Even Jesus himself, where Paul would say, when he humbled himself, he became low. He would say, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of man. Now think about how low Christ humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Not only his disposition of being lowly in heart, but his circumstances. What is Paul saying happened there? He was in the form of God, which means he was God. He didn't think it robbery, which like a robber is going to grasp something and not let go of it. Christ was in grasp of the privilege and his equality of God, but he didn't hold on to it, released it. Although being equal with God in his nature, he didn't hold on to something of the privilege that he had with God in that co-equality. What was it? What did he empty himself of or make himself no reputation about? That's what the word means. To make himself no reputation means to empty himself. He didn't empty himself by taking something away from himself. He took something upon himself, the form of a servant. It was an emptying, not by subtraction, but by addition. And what was that emptying? He emptied himself of the privilege of not being a creature. He was not a creature. He emptied himself of his divine prerogative in his co-equality with God in not being a creature. He didn't empty himself of divinity. So God himself took upon the form of a servant and became a man. How low can God get than to take on humanity and to become low for you and to retain his humanity for ages and ages and ages to come and never leave his humanity but so unite himself to humanity to be at the same time the son of man and the son of God. God manifest in the flesh which is the mystery of godliness 
Christ humbled himself so that you could have the God of comfort. He humbled himself, not just in obedience. He did that. He obeyed his parents. He obeyed magistrates. He obeyed his father. But he's obedient to the point of death. We might obey until it gets hard, until we decide, well, I I don't think I want to do that now. He obeyed to the point of death, but not just stopping there, even the death of the horrific cross. Not just death, but the death of a shameful, ignominious, suffering death. And now God has highly exalted him so that in Christ, our being united to him, we can have all the comfort of the God of comfort in every occasion of being cast down. Now here's the question, bring this to application. What is this comfort and how do I have it? That's pretty important, isn't it? Now what do you think about when you think of the word comfort? Now let me just tell you what my little small brain thinks about. I've got this gadget at home that my wife gave me. It's it's mechanical, you put it on your face and it's got these little rollers in it. And you turn it on, it just massages your whole face and head. It's just wonderful when you have a headache. I think about putting that thing on, and it's got music on it. You can turn it on, it's just a nice piano playing. You can turn it off or on. I want to kick back, I want to put that on my face, and I'm feeling maximum comfort. It feels really good. And the point of that illustration is to say that's really the comfort we're after, isn't it? The comfort that makes me feel good. That's what I'm after. Now, the comfort that comes from God can be a kind of comfort that can make us feel good physically because Paul has had a lift here. There's something that was in his life distressing him that God removed. And now he's feeling comfort. But there's something in Paul's life that was giving him distress that was still there. And we find that in verse 4. The last part of the verse says, I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. He's still in the tribulation, although the fears within have been lifted. So sometimes God brings this comfort and He removes something giving distress, or He brings something that was missing that was giving us distress. But see, the way I am and probably the way you are, that's what we want God to do all the time. We define comfort as that God, whenever you take away distressing circumstances, then I'm comforted. Or God, if something is missing in my life, That if you'll bring it to my life, it'll give me comfort that I expect you to do it. And if he doesn't, then we are upset. But we need to be very careful here because Paul's comfort that he experienced was the removal of something, but he still is in very much tribulation. Furthermore, when he brings comfort to the church, which in the latter part of this chapter, he says he was comforted in their comfort. What does he say? Verse 8, For though I made you Sorry with a letter. That means grief. That means sadness. So the comfort that comes from God at times may make us sorry for a season, a very short while that we may have long-term comfort. Now here's the point. How did Paul receive this comfort? How did the church receive their comfort? Through human instruments. Paul gives two reasons he's comforted. First, it was the coming of Titus. Verse 6, 
God comforted us by the coming of Titus. He arrived. He was present. Just his presence brought comfort. I was concerned that robbers may have gotten him or or something happened to Titus along the way. So Paul's fears concerning Titus were relieved. But there's a second reason. Verse 7, And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in or by you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoiced the more. So Titus not only arrived, he arrived with good news. The church responded favorably to Paul's letter of rebuke. And now they are concerning Paul. They they have desire toward Paul. They're mourning toward the way they had treated Paul. And they have a fervent mind. They want to see Paul again. Now that's significant as an apostle because if you turn away from Paul the apostle, you turn away from Paul's gospel, which is what was happening. The Judaizers had brought in another gospel. So Paul is overjoyed that they're returning to the truth of the gospel and not listening to these Judaizers, at least in part. There's more repentance that needs to happen. And this comfort that Paul experiences that that he receives and the comfort he's going to bring to the church is a comfort that at times removes distresses, but it it comforts sometimes by bringing distress or sorrow. So that gets to the application of how we then are to be conduits of God's comfort as human instruments. God is a source of all comfort, but in many times He's going to bring that comfort through our words to each other. See? How many times I've heard someone try to be in comfort? One of the first things you often see someone do is first they'll give a hug. Never underestimate the power of a hug when appropriate. A hug can just demonstrate you're with them. It can bring some level of comfort that's being communicated without ever saying a word. Sometimes your presence... A hug, when appropriate, can bring a kind of comfort that is communicating. You're there, you're with them, you're there to help, even though you've said nothing yet. But the word implies, at some point, there are words to be spoken. So, someone gives the hug and then they say, everything's going to be all right. Now, I wish I'd never said something like that, but there have been times where I didn't know what to say. and What I said was the wrong thing to say. Everything's going to be all right. Now, how do you think that might be interpreted? It's not interpreted that everything's going to be all right in the resurrection because that's ultimately when everything will be all right because until then, nothing will ever be all right completely and totally. We understand that. The way that may be interpreted is whatever's missing in my life that's grieving me, that's making me cast down, God's going to bring it to me soon. Or whatever's present in my life that's making me cast down, God's going to get rid of it. Thank you, brother, for telling me that. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to watch my calendar and clock. That may be the farthest thing from the truth. Beloved, it may be that the distressing circumstances never leave you until you die. Did tribulation ever leave Paul's life totally, completely? No. He died in it. He died in tribulation or persecution. Never left him. So we have to be careful that we don't communicate a message that sends the wrong thing from God and tries to bring a comfort that's only short term. Now, I will admit, if you tell me everything's going to be all right, I'll feel pretty good until things are not all right. And now I'm worse 
than I was before. So what we want to bring is the comfort that comes from God because we're not calling people to our side. We're calling people to God's side. And that's what the word is implying, which means we want to say, which is at times difficult. There are different circumstances and different things that need to be said at different times concerning what a person's distresses are. And so not easy. But in all cases, when we speak, we want to speak something that strengthens, encourages, that comforts relating to the truth. Look at what Paul does in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When he ends this chapter, I'm going to read there in verse 16, he finishes it with a kind of prayer in chapter 2, verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians, where he says this, Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So how has God given you everlasting consolation and good hope through grace? About verse 13. He has chosen you through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. He's chosen you to be saved through these two things, sanctification of the Spirit and believing the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given you everlasting consolation and good hope through grace in that way. Now, how is He going to comfort your hearts? In verse 17, what is that for? See, a comforted heart is a stable heart. So God is comforting hearts, those that are cast down. He's comforting them to make them stable in every good word and every good work so that they keep going all the way to glory. Because if He saved you to obtain glory... What's the means of getting you there? In part, it's the comfort of God and the stability that comes from comfort. So now you're the conduit of God's comfort. And He's going to use you to comfort someone's heart. Verse 15. Therefore, brothers, stand fast, be stable, hold the traditions which you have heard or been taught, whether by word or our letter. Comfort your hearts. Paul's word and Paul's letter is inspired. How is God comforting the church at Thessalonica so that they're stable? With the truth that Paul had taught them. What had he taught them in the first book? For which he sent Timothy to establish them, stable, and to comfort them, comfort your hearts, concerning their faith, you were appointed in all your afflictions. How's that for comfort? Brother, I just want to remind you, I love you and I'm here to help you, but God has a purpose in this. This didn't come out of the blue. All your distresses. I know all these circumstances conspired, but God was over it. He's appointed it. He's ordained it. So don't be moved by your afflictions. Now that's just one thing in one context which may not be the right thing in another context. It may be a thing you want to say later instead of sooner. But the point is, Paul makes it clear in this letter to Thessalonica that the conduit of comfort is the Word of God and that comfort is going to be reality. Your distresses that you want to go away are ordained and appointed by the living God who's the God of comfort. 
So stand fast and trust Him and hang on to God. Sooner or later, and it may be much later, it's going to lift. But until in God's appointed time, He has purpose for your holiness. Stay with God and stay in the fire with God. So when we comfort, I admit, the first thing I want to say is, you'll be okay, everything's all right. But what we need to say, which sometimes will be difficult, sometimes awkward, and sometimes people don't want to hear the truth when they're in distress, right? They want to hear a kind of comfort that affirms where they are, that affirms that they're okay, and some people get really angry when you try to tell them true things because they don't want to hear it. That could have been the response of the Corinthian church, but Paul was comforted because when he said true things that made them sorrowful, Remember, how was God comforting the church of Corinth? Through grief that was but a very short time. That's what the word season means. A very short time. To bring them what? Long-term comfort. So we ask the Lord, Lord, help us in our words to one another. Although it's difficult, sometimes we don't know what to say, sometimes we shouldn't say anything for the moment. But when we do, bless us to bring your comfort in your way, by your truth, even though at times it may bring sorrow, especially when there's sin to be confronted. Why are you in such distress? It's because of my sin. Or whether it's circumstances, that there's no particular sin to be charged, and yet I'm in such distressing circumstances. Remember, He is the God that is comforting you. And He did it to Paul by the coming of Titus, And he did it for the church by the coming of Paul's letter, which brings us to the second and final thing, godly sorrow. So Paul then says in verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. He's like the person, maybe you've been, that sent an email, you prayed over it, you read it a hundred times, maybe you even let somebody else read it, it looks good, you sent it, you're like, I'm not sure I should have done that. And you're kind of mixed emotions. So Paul said, at first I was wondering, was I too harsh, should I have sent it? But then he said, I didn't regret it. I didn't repent. Why? Because I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. He was glad. That's strange. I'm glad I made you sorry. Now that could be a fleshly kind of joy, but not in Paul's case. Though it were but for a season. Verse 9. Now he wants to explain that statement. Paul, I'm kind of concerned. Why are you so joyful in my sorrow? Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. That wouldn't be good. But that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner or according to God. That you might receive damage or loss by us in nothing. If they don't repent, they are going to suffer irreparable loss because they're moving away from Paul. But if they do repent, and they did, then they they suffer no loss in what Paul has done. Only gain. And then the explanation of verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world is working death. Godly sorrow. This is why Paul is rejoicing. Because it produced the kind of sorrow where God is at the center, and that godly sorrow produced a repentance to salvation. So now Paul gives us two pathways here 
a pathway to salvation that's moving toward salvation and a pathway to death that's moving toward death. And what's shocking and striking here is the similarities of these two pathways, namely two. Two similarities. Both pathways experience the same kind of sorrow. The Greek word lupeo is the same. This, this person's crying. They're sorrowful. Well, this person's crying. They're, they're grieved. They're sorrowful. It's identical. No difference. The second thing is both people, we're using two people here, are sorrowful for having done something wrong. It's identical in those two ways. Now let me give you an example. Judas Iscariot, Matthew 27, 3. He has sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed him. They try him all night. And then Judas sees Jesus condemned and being carried to, to Pontius Pilate. When he saw that he was condemned, that is, Jesus was condemned, he repented himself. He felt sorrow. He was grieved about it. And he went with the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and scribes and said, I have sinned and that I've uh, betrayed innocent blood. Two things. He repented and he sinned. And he was headed for death. Eternally. Well, we know that about Judas. That's what Jesus said. He's a devil. So everything in Judas' repentance is the same at the church at Corinth's repentance. Except theirs was leading to life and his was leading to death. So what's different about them? The different is the reason why. Why? What was Judas sorry about? And what is the church of Corinth sorry about? That was repentance on the pathway to salvation or a sorrow on the pathway to death. And of course the key is what just Paul lays out. It's a repentance that is according to God or a repentance that is according to the world. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow over losing something in the world. I lost my marriage. I lost my family. I lost my job. I lost my possessions. I lost my reputation. I lost my love affair. See, it could be, it could be good things you lose or bad things you lose, but the sorrow is over losing something in the world. Now listen to 1 John 2.15 to put, put this together with this text. Where John says, as you know, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, because all that is in the world is lust, lust, pride. Desire and pride of possessions. So the kind of heart that is in love with the world is in love with the value of the world. They highly value the world. What's the value of the world in that text? The value of the world is that we think it can satisfy our desires and bring us pleasure. That's the value of the world that the world has to natural man. So the kind of heart that loves the world is the same heart that's grieving over losing the world which is what kind of heart 
a heart that is self-centered and wants pleasure. And so what happens when you take away the pleasure? Because you did something wrong. The love of the world is still there. It's all about me. It's all about my desires, my pleasure, what I want out of life. And now I'm so sorrowful. I'm hurting because what gives me pleasure in the world is either taken away or it's about to be stripped out of my hands. And for that, I am broken. That's worldly sorrow. It has zero to do with God. Now, godly sorrow certainly can and in some cases include some of those things. We, we should be sorrowful when we've done things that, that harm people. And in a sense, we're sorrowful in a horizontal way. It should include that. But godly sorrow is God-centered for just the opposite reason, over the value of God. Because sin has done what? Devalued and belittled the God of heaven. That's why I'm so sorrowful. You see the difference? I have belittled His love for me, His care, His compassion, His mercy, His grace. I have despised Him. And that's what God said to David, right? When David repented in Psalm 51, what did he say? Against thee and thee only have I sinned? That wasn't true. That's godly sorrow. It's centered upon God. And what did God say when Nathan came to him? You despised my name. You belittled who I was for you. And for that, David was what? Broken. He was broken. So Judah's sorrow has nothing to do with God. I just portrayed innocent blood. He didn't say, my friend, the man I was with for three years, I can't believe I betrayed him. It's just innocent blood. And he goes and hangs himself, which is an act of what? Self-pity. All suicide is not that. Hear me carefully. All suicide, when you hear of it, is not that. There are people, they're on drugs and are on medications that tell them it could produce suicidal thoughts. But when people commit suicide... Out of rational thoughts, we must admit, even when a Christian does it, it's self-centered. I don't want to endure this pain. I am grieving. I don't want to live anymore. I, I, I. That's what it is. And we need to understand that. And that's what Judas' sorrow is all about. It's just about him. Just like the rich young ruler. He was sorrowful, right? Jesus said, sell what you have, give to the poor. Have treasure in heaven, come follow me. He went away sorrowful. Now, when someone is weeping, we automatically shut the conversation down. Everything's over. That's good. It's right. They're sorrow. Not Paul. Paul knows there's a sorrow that has nothing to do with God. So the rich young ruler is sorrowful. Why? He had great possessions that pointed to something about his heart. He was a self-centered man. But you say he didn't lose his possessions. If godly sorrow is... Or worldly sorrow is sorrow over losing something in the world or about to lose something. Well, he didn't lose anything. Ah, but he did. Because when he arrived, what did he say to Jesus? Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He lost the praise of self-righteousness because Jesus never gave it to him. He had a covetous heart. And his sorrow was rooted in a kind of worldly sorrow that he didn't get what he wanted. What his selfish heart wanted was affirmation that he was good. And Jesus points to his possessions and his heart 
and says what? You're not good. In fact, there's none good but God. And then there's the example of the prodigal who gives us an example of godly sorrow, right? And what's he sorrowful about? I have sinned against heaven and before thee when he came to himself. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Now, when he came back and the father had a party for him, what was the father's interpretation of his repentance? He was lost, but now he's found. What was he dead to? What was he lost to? What was he blind to? The love of his father. His father was so good to him, so loving, so kind, so gracious, and he just spurned his father's love. Now that's pointing to God the Father, isn't it? Now, he might have felt bad and should have of spending the father's money and all the things that went on outside of that. that that's included there. But at the heart of this son's repentance, was it? his father was so good. There's bread enough even to spare for the servants. He's so good. He's so lovely. And the father's love has been running after, running after him all his life, and he just spurned it. And now he feels broken. And now the father's what? Overjoyed at his repentance. And God is, as the, as the, the prodigal story tells us, is overjoyed in your repentance when it's God-centered. Because your sorrow is about His glory. Not just about what you lost. That's the sorrow of the world. So beloved, let us search our hearts and ask, when we are sorrowful, what's the cause of the sorrow? And that'll help us, right? Can we still have worldly sorrow? Yes. Probably more times than I would like to to say. But to ask the question then helps me to go to God and say, Lord, Give me the godly sorrow that works repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. But then notice the fruit of this in verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. So Paul is now going to point to the fruit of godly sorrow because he wants them to be assured that their sorrow was the right kind. It was God-centered. So if I were to put these words in in a pyramid, I would put fear at the top. That's in the middle. And then going up to fear, we have carefulness, clearing of yourselves, and indignation, then the fear of God. Other side, other side, we've got vehement desire, zeal, and revenge. So let me talk about those briefly. Carefulness means an eagerness to do something. When you have godly sorrow and you repent, now you're eager to do something. What? You're eager to clear yourselves. That's the second word. That word is apologia, which means to give a defense, which is kind of odd. That's usually the problem and why I don't repent. I am ready to give a defense as to why I'm not guilty. More than I would like to say. Are you that way? No, no, no. That's not what it was. That's not what I did. It was your fault. But the word here means, same word, a defense against sin. I am ready. I'm eager to defend from all future assaults of sin. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. Like the country did after 9-11, right? What a terrible, terrible event. And then what happened? We fortified ourselves. We did what it took to try to defend ourselves of future assaults of terrorism. You'll do the same if you're truly repentant. You'll do whatever it takes. You're so broken over belittling God's glory. Now, you're eager to defend against future assaults. And you'll do whatever it takes. Even to gouging out your eye and throwing it away. 
Jesus says. And you do that because you have indignation against sin. Now you, 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 you hate it. You're angry at it. You, it's a disgust. You ever just said that? I hate sin when you do it. I just hate how it so easily captures me. And of course, the reason you do that is at the pinnacle of the, of the pyramid, it's the fear of God. You know what the fear of God is in Proverbs 8.13? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogancy, the evil way, and the froward mouth. I hate what I just said. I hate it. And so I'm eager to defend against future words coming out of my mouth because I hate it because I fear and value God. Now let's work down the other side. Because of that fear, now there's vehement desire and zeal. We'll put those together. A longing to pursue something. What? Reconciliation. There were people hurt in your sin. Perhaps. I'm going to pursue reconciliation. I'm going to go back and say, forgive me. Because the fear of the Lord produces that. Now this will be awkward. This will be hard. This will take getting low to the ground. There may be sins that are committed that are so challenging and offensive that it takes work to be reconciled. Work in a marriage. But I'm committed. I am longing. I have a zeal. I have a burning desire to be reconciled to you because I've offended you. First God, now love to neighbor. And then finally, what revenge, exclamation point, Paul puts there. Revenge means Justice, vindication, retribution. Retribution means punishment for what has been done. But the punishment here is the punishment of the sin, the one that did the sinning, meaning this. Whatever consequences, whatever the results of my sin, I embrace it. If I've got to pay that back, I'll pay every red cent. I don't care how much it is. Because I am now wanting justice to be served. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not trying to get out of it. I embrace it fully. Paul says, in all these things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in the matter. Now, clear almost sounds like, means pure, means pure from fault. Almost as if Paul's saying, you're not even guilty, but he's not. He's saying you're clear from what? Worldly sorrow. You have shown and demonstrated the kind of sorrow you have is not worldly. Why? Because of the pyramid. That's the fruit of godly sorrow. So what's our application in closing? How do we position ourselves, not only for the comfort of God, to be conduits with His truth, but to have godly sorrow, right? God is active in that. God is part of that. Preventure that God would give repentance to what? The acknowledging of the truth. So the first thing we need to do is acknowledge truth. Go to the truth of God's Word and ask ourselves again, am I experiencing worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? And then we can repent of our repentance. Isn't that interesting? Because if it's worldly repentance, then I need to repent of that kind of repenting. So all we can do is ask, Lord, I'm going to search my heart. Is... Is this repentance because a desire is ruling me that has nothing to do with you? It's just everything I'm losing in life because of what I did wrong? Or including that, is it because I have offended you, the one who died? The one who died even the death of the cross. The one who took the nails in his hands. 
the scourging on his back while I was a rebel. See, we have to go to truth to acknowledge truth. And then back to verse 1, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the spirit and the flesh, perfecting holiness. If you're not in the Word, why would you ever feel bad about offending the God of the Word? Well, you won't. You won't. It'll just be, you know, I'm out of relationship with my parents, my children, my somebody, and that's painful. So we have to go to the Word and be cleansing ourselves, purifying by the Word and the Holy Spirit, perfecting holiness, which means we're seeing the God who is holy, and by seeing Him, we can see through the Word more likely when we've offended God and when we've fallen short again and again and again of His glory, right? So let us remember God is the God of all comfort. He is the God that comforts the cast down. And sometimes that's by bringing things into our lives that bring sorrow, and sometimes He removes distresses. But in all cases, He's the God of comfort. And lastly, godly sorrow is a sorrow where God is at the center not that we're just sorrowful over losing the pleasures of life. And we ask God to bless us with this fruit so that we can examine ourselves and go to the Word and be in a position that we would experience more of that, right? More of the kind of sorrow to repentance that is on the pathway of salvation. Let's pray to that end. Father, we ask you as we examined your Word by your grace this morning, help us to experience godly sorrow for a short, very short season that gives way to a, a godly joy that Paul is experiencing, the church is experiencing, because they see the weight of what they have done. They've seen the weight of how they've treated the apostle, God's apostle, and how they've been towards the truth of who you are. And now they felt the weight of that sorrow, but it gave way to joy. Uh, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, as in daylight, but in the morning, as in the sorrow that we experience over sin. So give us more of that sorrow because we know when we have it, we are drawing closer, we are perfecting holiness, we're having more joy, and we're giving you more glory. And Lord, we confess there's much more sin in us to feel sorrow over. So bless us to see it, bless us to move through it in the way of confession, repentance, and to be restored again and again to the God who restores all comforts and that gave his life for us. We love you, we thank you, and bless all this to be so. In Jesus' name we pray.